It is not intended that God would give instructions, and our first question would be, how can I find a loophole in this instruction? It's not intended that we would go to the Word of God and and ignore some places in the Word of God that we don't like that are very firm and find another place to say, oh, well, this seems a little ambiguous. Maybe he doesn't mean exactly what he said he meant over here because it's not as clear here. It's a matter of how do you approach God? Do you approach God that He is the authority over all things, that what He says is what is said, and it is not your job to try to twist His words, but to obey His words, to hold fast to His words. And many times in life, we find ourselves in positions where we want to hear the words of God, but make them fit with our wants and desires. Do you not? I think as husbands, we struggle with this when we read passages like wives submit to husbands. We want to apply those very strongly. We want to tell our wife, you're commanded to submit to me. But that command is to her. It's not husbands submit your wives. I know many of you like the pagan rituals of two gladiators entering to a ring and beating each other for fun. That is not the command of you and your wife. It is not that you are to enter into a, uh, a game of war and you are to submit her. The command to you is to love her, to live with her in an understanding way, to seek to lead in such a way that she would long to submit, to care for her in such a way that she would be willing and thankful to do so. And when she is not to love her and honor her and care for her in such a way that would be clear about what God has commanded, for His glory, and not for the ease of your life. Wives the same. Yes, yeah, so a wife can be helpful as a husband can be helpful to say, oh, this is how I view submission. A wife could say, this is how I view love. But ultimately, it is not her definition of love that defines how a husband is to love his wife. It is God's definition of love. And so even as we can be helpful to one another to say, well, I receive love this way, and that is good, that is to serve one another, ultimately our definitions and our discussions should be based on what has God designed and declared that love is. In simple ways, we frequently seek to use the Word of God to get what we desire rather than to obey what He has declared. And it is helpful for us in all areas of life. It was very helpful in our text this morning at the time as many Pharisees, not just these ones, but many and others came to Jesus in discussions on the issue of divorce. Because the Pharisees had assumed they found a loophole in the design of God. They found a freedom in which God never gave. And they abused the institution of marriage by creating laws and light laws of divorce. They were willing to hear what God said and look for uh, less clear passages that aren't really addressing the issue in, in a way in which they're applying it to get what they want. And my hope for us this morning is that we would have a clear understanding of what marriage is and what God designed it to be that we would have a clear understanding of what divorce is and why divorce is never an option of good, but only permitted because of evil. And that we, as a church, those who are married, would commit to divorce is never a word that should come out of my mouth. It is a temptation that should flee from my thoughts. I should listen to the Word of God first and foremost, and that divorce would never be something I would ponder. In the same way we choose to remove from our our minds lust and greed and all kinds of other thoughts of I'm not going to travel down that road, divorce for you who are married should be the same. For you who are single, it is essential that you consider the reality of the commands for marriage. Because entering a covenant of marriage, the vow 
And the covenant which God has made to enter into such a covenant is a binding covenant. It is not a matter of personal preference and desire. It is a matter of the honor and the glory of God. It is not just for the married that these commands are given. It is for all because marriage is not a picture just of marriage. Marriage does not exist just for the satisfaction of man. It does not exist to satisfy and to serve us as people. It is not why it was created. It is not its purpose. It is something that happens in marriage. Yes, you are served and you are satisfied, but it was not created to serve and satisfy you. Marriage has a bigger purpose of creation. It is not made for your service and your satisfaction. I'm not going to, I'll give you a spoiler alert of where we will get. It was created to declare the Trinity, the relationship of God and the unity within God and to declare later the mystery of the gospel of Christ that he would call the people to himself. Marriage exists as a human illustration given to us, rooted in and wrapped into creation in such a way that declares the intimacy of the relationship of God and the commitment of Christ to his church. That is its purpose. That is why it exists. And like all good things that God has created, you will find joy and satisfaction as you use them for the purpose which God has made them. But when you shift the purpose to be your satisfaction and your service, you will confuse and you will manipulate and you will twist God's word to try to satisfy and serve you. And then you will find yourself without joy. You will find yourself in contention. You'll find yourself suffering. You'll find yourself put in such a position that you long to run back to the caring and faithful arms of your Father, God. So without further introduction, let's go to the text. I'll read the text for us again, and I will pray, and then we'll begin looking at the context, the text, and seek to apply briefly together at the end of our time. So if you open your Bible, look at your handout, Uh, Recite from your memory, as I'm sure this is a memory passage for so many of you. No? No. All right, Mark 10, starting at verse 1. And he left there and went to the region of Judea, beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And the Pharisees came up in order to test him, Asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries Another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would give wisdom and clarity to my words this morning, God, that you would help me not to depend merely on preparation but on your spirit, Lord, as you are always faithful. I pray you would help me to rest in your faithfulness. 
I pray, Lord, on a topic that is, is not just theologically removed from our mind, but theologically rooted in our hearts, in our past, and in our future, decisions and thoughts and actions in marriage. I pray you would give us hearts that long to obey you. I pray you would give us hearts that seek to know what you have said. Lord, you would give us hearts that don't see you as having a firm grip on us in which we are trying to get away from, but that you have loving arms in which we long to rest in. I pray, Father, that you would help us to see clearly your kindness, your glory, your beauty in all things, that we would hold fast to trust you in all of your commands. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. First, let's look together at the context. And the context is given, as you're reading your Bible, it is so helpful often when a context is given right here directly in the passage. As many weeks I point to and say, remember what is happening previously. As Mark is writing, uh, he's doing the same for us. In verse 1, he says, And he left there and went to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, uh, and crowds gathered to him again, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. This brief verse, this little sentence, covers a period of probably about six months in which he was in Capernaum, in, in a region uh, more north to the Sea of Galilee, teaching and instructing his disciples. Uh, and if you look in the book of John and in the book of Luke, there's actually a lot that goes on in that time of ministry that Mark doesn't count. Uh, well, he doesn't record. He counts it. He knows it happened. Uh, but he doesn't record it. He summarizes that large period of time and much of the teaching uh, with this sentence transitioning to say, Jesus didn't stay there forever. As he left there, he went down to Judea. And when he went to Judea, he did as was his custom, as crowds gathered to him. What does he do? He teaches them. He proclaims the truth. In the beginning of the book of Mark, we see Mark leans much heavier on the miracles of Christ, of what Christ accomplishes in fulfillment of prophecy, though Mark doesn't list the prophecy like Matthew. As Mark is speaking to Romans, he lets the prophecies fulfilled speak for themselves and the miracles in which Christ proclaims and accomplishes. Uh, whereas if you read the book of Matthew, Matthew returns again and again to point to these things are fulfilling this specific prophecies that were made. Mark declares the person of Christ in the miracle of Christ, knowing that if this were to happen at any time, this is massively significant. Who is this man? The miracles of Christ are not commonplace to man, nor are they even common in the church today. They were highlighting, accentuating the truth of the reality of who Christ was. And in the first half of Mark, or up into 8, we see heavy emphasis on those things, his miracles. As we shift now in verse, our chapters 9 and 10 and the next few chapters, we see far more emphasis on his direct teaching in what he taught and said. And Mark declares that as Jesus did not come just to do miracles, did not come just to fulfill the prophecy uh, to make that known, but he, as was his custom, if there was a crowd, he taught. He taught clearly the word of God for their benefit. And so remember that context as we're moving here. This is not a random passage that we chose we're moving through the book of Mark, coming to each passage as Mark, by the Spirit, wrote it to deal with those passages. So it's important for us to think about that. This is not a removed teaching of just, oh, here's your instruction on divorce and remarriage. It is the narrative of Mark, the history of what's going on, recorded in an order with a purpose to declare. And so here we see Jesus declaring, and as we often do, declaring against the critics. Remember the critics, as I look at the book of Mark, this is not a biblical command of how you must observe this, but this is how I categorize what's going on, is you have the crowds, the critics, and the called. You have those who come to Jesus just as part of a crowd. There's no real clarity of why they're there, what they came for, except that there's a crowd, and humans generally, for the most part, not all of us, 
uh, see a crowd and go, oh, what's going on over there and run to it, right? Others of us like me go, I don't want to go over there. Why would I go over there? Look how many people are there. I'm going to go over here where there's not a crowd and find a nice few people to talk to. But generally, you know, a lot of your children don't have the benefit of public high school to know that pagan humans will just yell things like fight and then the rest of the pagan humans will all run and crowd around to see what's happening. You have the crowds. No clarity of why they're there except that there's a crowd so they chose to be there too. You also have the called. Those who have heard Christ, who know who Christ is, who have understood, not, not in full maybe, but understand that he is at very least a prophet, uh, and they want to hear what this prophet has to say, and they come to hear that, and they realize this is not just a prophet, this is the Messiah who was promised to come, and they are with Christ. And specifically, you have the twelve, those Jesus called himself to be his disciples. And then you have... The critics. You have the Pharisees, the Sadducees, uh, not as often, but occasionally the Herodians. You have these that are politically leading at the time and religiously leading at the time. And they are coming to test, as it says here, or to seek to discredit Christ before the people. They do not like that Christ is preaching what he is preaching, because remember, Christ is preaching as he has from the beginning. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. What the Pharisees would like him to preach is, be like the Pharisees, because the kingdom of God is at hand. The Sadducees would like to hear, conform to the Sadducees, because the kingdom of God is at hand. The Herodians would like to hear, listen to the political wisdom of the Herodians, because the kingdom of God is at hand. And what Christ continues to preach is repent, because the kingdom of God is at hand. He continues to call as the Gospels do through the mouth of John and continue into the epistles to the church that our calling is not to be those who declare our righteousness, but to repent and to trust in the righteousness of him alone. And as Jesus declares this, you have those who refuse to be satisfied by their need for repentance. The Pharisees refused to rest in the teaching of Christ. But Christ, as is his custom, continues to make clear again and again the truth of the gospel of God. We've seen it to his disciples. He repeats again and again the same things that he will die, that the leaders of the time will take him, they will beat him, he will be crucified, and he will rise again in three days, right? Again and again, Jesus declares this truth. And in the same way, we see in the Gospels, the critics come with the same questions. This is likely not the only time Jesus answered this question. It's not the only time he has declared it publicly. I think we often think of the Gospels as this kind of quick story movie, as though everything happens like a movie, and it was just put together to move that way. The Gospels are declaring the history. They are organized literary literature for the purpose of us understanding but Jesus answering this question here does not mean this is the only time Jesus answered this question. It is declaring how Jesus answered this question. And it is declaring to us the reality in which our hearts need to hear. I hope this morning, instead of seeking our own satisfaction, our own comfort, our own desires, we will hear the rebuke to the Pharisees and learn. We will find correction and clarification and comfort and faithfulness even in the most intimate places of life because of Jesus' faithfulness to clarify for the Pharisees here. In what again should have drawn them to repentance, but instead just hardens them in their own heart as they seek to kill Christ. So as we look at the text, you will see it first starts with the question. As we're given the context of where this questioning is happening, we're then told who particularly is coming to question. As Jesus is teaching, and we don't know when exactly this happened, maybe at the end of his teaching, maybe before he's teaching, but at some point, as Jesus is teaching, these Pharisees, verse 2, 
come up in order to test him. And the question is this, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Why are they questioning him? The, the Pharisees are not coming with a heart of longing to understand. Now, some of them, whether coming with the right heart or wrong heart, would understand it. And we have clarity in the Gospels of men like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, who are Pharisees, who come to the truth and, and acknowledge that. We have Paul, who is a Pharisee of Pharisees and, and doesn't come to the truth in the life of Christ, uh, but after the resurrection of Christ, is called as an apostle by Christ for the purpose of the church. But Jesus doesn't answer this question uh, just to satisfy them. He answers the question to one, condemn them in their view and to clarify to them the God whom they should be worshiping. Why do they question? They want to discredit him before people and they want to defame him or destroy him in society. The laws of marriage had become, or for divorce rather, had become incredibly patriarchal and in that a man could basically divorce his wife for any reason he wanted to. There's a huge abuse of the design of God. And many historical resources will point to things that are going on at the time, like, you know, he can divorce her because she burnt food, because he doesn't like the way she dresses, because she showed her ankles to another man, all kinds of things that are heinous and evil. Not loving, not caring, not careful, not kind. They had basically turned marriage to serve man rather than God. And I say that not meaning mankind, but I mean males. They turned it from being something that serves God in a relationship of unity and necessity and clarity and love and affection and turned it into something that serves men. So societally, they are coming to ask Jesus this question because if Jesus says, no, a man can't divorce, who is he offending? All the men who want divorces and the women who want divorces. All of those who are looking for an easy law that allows them to satisfy their own desires and never holds them to the clarity of God's word. Politically, they are asking this question uh, because it would be dangerous for Jesus to take this position. You might say, why politically would it be dangerous for Jesus to take this position? If you remember in chapter 6, John the Baptist was arrested by Herod Antipas, and he was killed because Herod's wife Herodias, who he was both in an adulterous and, in many ways, an uh, incest relationship with, John continually cried out against. John made clear that Herod was committing adultery and that he had broken vows of marriage and that he continued to live in sin by being married to this woman who was another man's wife. And if you remember, you could go back and read in chapter 6 what happens is that very political, very tabloid-driven, very we-do-what-we-want-and-we-can-because-we're-in-power family lived in such immorality that Herod throws an immoral party, lusting after his own stepdaughter with other men, in which she returns and asks for John the Baptist's head on a platter, and Herod is stuck because of his politics and his pride to do so. And John is killed because he made a woman angry, because he declared her sin. And so the Pharisees look to entrap Jesus between the crowd and the politics. And they say, if he will not satisfy the crowd, then the crowd will no longer follow him. And if he will not satisfy the politicians, the politicians will have his head. And so the Pharisees, as they are always doing, are coming to Christ to defame him to discredit him, and to destroy him. And Jesus does something incredible, as he always does. He cuts through their motives and goes directly to their heart. Jesus cuts through the motives of the Pharisees who are coming to test him, 
who in their twisted and deceived motives are not looking to follow Christ, but to find Christ at fault, to justify themselves. And so Jesus answers them. The Pharisees give the question to corner him, and Jesus answers to clarify. He answered them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus, verse 5, And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this command. Jesus cuts through their goals in trapping him between the powers of politics and the passions of the people. And he points to their twisting of Scripture to get what they wanted. He asks them, what did Moses command you? And their answer is, Moses commanded us a man could write a certificate of divorce and leave his wife. They're quoting from Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4, that reads as such. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then the former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance." Jesus asks, what did Moses command? And they say, Moses commanded we could just give a woman a certificate of divorce and remove her. What they failed to recognize is Moses also commanded in the Ten Commandments, thou shall not commit adultery. See, they selectively choose where Moses has communicated. They do not take what has Moses commanded. They choose a verse in which they have found can satisfy their desires and not look at the intent of the law. They neglect the greater command, the command of God's holiness, and they choose a command of mercy and kindness and say, this is God's command, and so we can do as we wish. This command in Deuteronomy 24 does not declare a man has every right to divorce his wife. What it legislates is the ongoing actions if a man is to do so. It does not uphold divorce and say a man has every right to divorce for any reason. It declares if a man is to do so, and he is to do so for some reason of indecency. So this indecency would be Something below that of immorality, uh, of, sorry, something below adultery. That she has been immoral in some way. And you see that later, or earlier in Deuteronomy, the same word is used to describe that which is sin before God by his people, their indecency before him. What the Pharisees did at the time was they took this as a command, not a law of clarity, but a law of command, and said, so a man can divorce his wife for any reason in which she does not find favor in his eyes. They took indecency here to be commanded, number one, and they took it to mean anything. They let the defining of indecency be the favor of the man's eyes. And he said, yeah, if he finds any reason and there would be pages and pages and pages of pharisaical rabbis and earlier rabbis declaring why a man can divorce his wife for essentially any reason. And what is actually commanded here, though our society would never accept this reality, though it remains true, is protection for a woman who has been mistreated. What's commanded is protection for this woman in that if a man has thrown her out of his house for some lesser reason, 
And she marries another man. She goes to another man because marriage is always a vulnerable position. Marriage is always vulnerable. A wife is called to submit to her husband. She is always vulnerable to him. Now, there is a vulnerability in, the, in, in being a man in marriage also, but that which goes on in marriage as a woman is particularly vulnerable because if she is to follow his leadership in all things, then she is in a place of vulnerability. She is in a place where she must be cared for by him and she must be cared for well to be comforted. In the ancient world, it would be even more so true because she would need him for protection. In our society, the government exists in a far greater way in which there is greater protection for women and children, just societally. But in the ancient world, without the modern conveniences that allow quick movement of people and clarity uh, and still failed but better court systems, she is so vulnerable. And if she is to take another husband who would then care for her and love her and be kind to her, then if that husband was to decide he hates her and to commit the same foolishness and faithlessness of the previous man, or he was to die, she is commanded not to go back to the man who flippantly removed her. Not to go back to the man who was not willing to hear the command of God, but was willing to say, I found some lesser indecency in her, and she would be removed. This command in Deuteronomy 24 is a command of mercy, not a command of full justice carried out immediately. And you've got to understand this throughout the Old Testament. God's laws are not laws of full and complete justice immediately. The laws of the Old Testament are never, well, yes, are never. Uh, I was like, wait, hold on. Yeah. I'll, I'll still go with that. Are never full and complete justice because sin deserves eternal damnation. Not even just death. Death is a consequence of sin. It is not the full justice of what sin deserves. Many laws in the Old Testament, such as adultery, are commanded in that what should happen? Corporal punishment they're, that they should be immediately stoned, removed from the camp, and killed. Now, all sin deserves death, but not all sin is immediately given death. And much of the law declares the mercy of God. It is partly why the entire Old Testament sacrificial law existed. Hebrews tells us clearly, as is clear to us, this, the blood of bulls and goats will never take away sin. There was no sin paid for or cleansed from in the Old Testament system. Those laws did not exist to make justice. They existed to declare the mercy of God. And so as an animal was sacrificed, it was not a declaration of your sin is okay. You are cleansed. Now you can die and go to eternity because you are perfect and righteous. It is a declaration of you are dependent upon God for righteousness. And the command of sacrifice was to declare the mercy of God and that he will not kill you, though you deserve it. He will provide salvation in pointing to a Messiah. And so this law in Deuteronomy 24, this command is a command of mercy, not, not a command of rule. And they treated it as a command of rule. They said, this is the rights of a man to divorce his wife for any reason. And Jesus points this very thing out. You, you might be thinking, like, how does Jake come up with all of this? Well, look at Jesus' answer. He says, they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. But what do you say about divorce? As long as a man does the paperwork, he can send her away, Right? And Jesus knows where they're quoting. He knows what they're thinking. He knows where they're arguing and getting this idea. And he answers them. He says to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this command. You are confusing why this exists. This law, this rule exists because of your sin. You are taking something written to you in mercy 
to regulate the society of Israel. And you're saying, this gives us rights. And he says, no, this protects you from death. This is a command given because of the hardness of heart. This is a command to correct your sin in a way that cares for society. And you are taking this command and saying it declares your rights rather than seeing this command as a call to repentance. It would be such as an Old Testament saint saying, I am cleansed, I am cleaned on the Day of Atonement. So the day before, let's live like the purge. Let's live in sin of all kinds because the Day of Atonement cleanses me. That Jew would not understand the Day of Atonement. That Jew is viewing the system of God as some kind of loophole that can make him holy. And he is looking to satisfy what he wants. He's not seeing the holiness of God in his sin and that declares mercy to him only on the grounds of God. And so Jesus clarifies for them. He says, this command did not, the one in which you're quoting, does not exist to give you rights. It exists to call you to repentance. This command was given because of the hardness of your own heart. This command is to care for you in the reality of sin on earth. This command is like much of the, the legal law given in the book of Moses, the books of Moses. But what Jesus does is he quotes Moses earlier. He states to them, no, you're looking to find what works in Moses to fit your system. But you are not considering what Moses has commanded. You're not considering what Moses had declared. You have a system you want that is to call you to repentance, and you are seeking to live in it as though it declares you righteous, that you can do what you want. So he answers, and he says to them, because of your hardness of heart, this commandment was giving. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Verse 7, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. What therefore, Jesus' words, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus clarifies their question with the clear truth of the divine creation of marriage. If you look with me in your handout, the divine creation of marriage. He quotes two places, Genesis 1:27, that God has created man and woman in his image, male and female, he created them. Genesis 1:27. So let's look first with that, his creation of marriage, the divine design. So God created man in his own image. I'm reading from Genesis 1:27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, speaking of all mankind, male and female, he created them. He created man in his image. He created mankind as male and female, he created them. And they exist how in his image. And then says, verse 28, And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on earth. Men and women share value in that they are created to display the image of God. And, and Jesus starts there first. He starts here at Genesis 1 and 2. And if you're a Bible student, you know there is something very significant about Genesis 1 and 2 that is not true of everything following Genesis 2. Genesis 1 and 2 exist before sin. Genesis 1 and 2 declare the truth of God and His design when all things are good. Created good, created for their purpose. And Genesis 3 begins all of that in which God continues to show mercy despite the penalty and the condemnation of sin. So Jesus says, no, you missed what Moses commanded in Genesis 2. 
You missed what Moses declared about marriage before sin existed. You are leaning on God's love and mercy for you to deal with a world where divorce is going to happen. But you fail to see God's design and intention, what it means to flee from sin and rest in His commands. Because Genesis 1 is not where it ends. You can see it in Genesis 1. God created them. What did He create them for? To be fruitful and to multiply. Right? I I know many of you have young children here. I hope you understand what it means to be fruitful and to multiply. Yes? I still see some confused adult eyes. So I'm just looking for affirmation. Okay, lots of confusion. Uh, We'll do another one where we we don't allow young children in service. And we'll talk very bluntly about what it means to be fruitful and multiply. But were you to understand, you could later ask your spouse, uh, what does it mean to be fruitful and multiply? And then what are they to do in that fruitful multiplication as they have more and more children? They are to bring the rest of creation under the dominion of God. And he has given them authority as such. Just in Genesis 1, we see humans are not like animals. They're created differently. They're created with the authority over creation because they are created in the image of God, right? So when you say pigs are people too, no friend, you are wrong. When you say your dog is your child or a family member, no friend, you are wrong. Your dog, your cat, your pig, your pet, is not created in the image of God. Now, it might be a mercy of God that He allows them into heaven, but I would say they have no soul. Once they cease existing, they cease existing. I will not comfort you with false ideas that you want to get to heaven to see Fido again, because Fido is not the purpose of heaven. Christ is. And who will be there are those who have fallen and bowed to Christ as they are created in His image, to glorify Him forever. Men and women exist differently than animals. And so we do not take our ethics of marriage or sexuality from animals and say we are just animals like everything else, so we should just sow our wild oats. We should just be fruitful and multiply like rabbits or like pigs, not like I believe penguins and other things that actually practice like a faithful marriage is incredible to me. That as animals, God has created some in such ways that they reflect monogamy and faithfulness. His command for marriage is not just in Genesis 1. There's a more direct command in Genesis 2. Look with me. His command for marriage, Genesis 2, verse 18 He says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. What we see in Genesis 2 is a difference of creation. Genesis 1 declares all creation. says God made man in his own image, male and female. He created them. Then in Genesis 2, we see an intimate picture of God's creation of man as male and female. God doesn't do this for all of creation. It doesn't go Genesis 3, here's how God made hippos. Genesis 4, here's how God made Great Danes. Genesis 5, here's how God let sin enter the world and make cats. Just kidding. This Noah guy who makes those jokes a lot, and they're kind of funny. It is not a description of how every animal is made, how everything comes about. Genesis 2 is a specific description that says God has created man in his image, male and female, and their relationship together in dominion, their marriage is something significant. It is not just like the animals. We see this in that God says in Genesis 2, he has made all things and they are good, but there is one thing that is not good. Adam has dominion over all the animals. But there is not a helper fit for Adam. And Adam is brought all the animals and he gives them a name and he clarifies who they are. He shows his dominion over the earth. And then God clarifies for him, you alone will not reflect the image and the glory of God in such a way as you should. You need a helper fit for you. Not that he could be like the animals, that his command is over the animals. Adam is not given a fit helper 
because he's got to be like the rest of the animals. He is given a fit helper because he and his people will rule and reign over the animals for the glory of God. And so in Genesis 2, we have an intimate picture of God's design. Genesis 2, 18, as I read for you, says, It's not good that man should be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. And now out of the ground, God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heaven and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. He displays the need for Adam, and his union will be displayed, starting at verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs, closed up the place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and he shall be called, she shall be called his pronouns are important. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. He declared for all people, for all time, instructions about what marriage is from Adam and Eve. This marriage, remember, God has made. He took Adam's like, I don't know. She, she just, I don't really fit with her. She, no, bro, you perfectly fit with her. She's made out of your rib, right? It's very clear for Adam. Say, I don't know, there's lots of options. I'd like, no, there's one, dude. And she's yours. And without sin, Adam doesn't question any of that. What does Adam do? As soon as he sees her, he doesn't go, God, she's not my type. I, I, I really, I'm looking for a woman that's a little bit shorter than me. I feel like we're kind of equal height, right? I'm not going to give you all the lame types in which we cho choose. What God says is, this is your type. This is made perfect to fit you. This is made for you. And what Adam does is immediately accept that in such a way that he immediately turns to praise. And it seems that possibly, maybe just in Adam, but maybe in all people, there is the ability to immediately break into song before sin. Because Adam immediately breaks into song. This woman is bone of my bone. This woman is flesh of my flesh. This woman is not like the animals in which I rule over. This woman is mine. And I love the ancient pastors. Not that ancient, because they were alive when my grandpa was. But that would say, a woman is not taken from the head of man that he would, she would rule over him. And she's not taken from the foot of man that he would stomp on her but she is taken from the rib of man, that she would be close and protected by him and loved close to his heart. And Adam accepts all of that without question. He rejoices. He doesn't need clever statements about where God grabbed her from. He is ready to rejoice over her creation. And then we are given instruction. While this man and woman were brought together, Verse 24, therefore, here is Moses' command. What did Moses command? He says, without sin and perfection, man and woman were made equal and made together for one another. And therefore, a man shall leave his mother and father, and he shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. While all people need relationship, this relationship is significant. Notice, God didn't say it is not good that Adam is alone because he's a boy with no instruction. He needs parents. Right? God didn't create a mom and dad for Adam. He didn't say it's not good for Adam to be alone. He needs his boys. What's Adam going to do on Friday nights? What's he going to do? How's he going to go have fun? How's he going to just release stress? He needs boys. No. He says it is not good that Adam should be alone. What does he need? Adam needs a helper fit for him. Man needs woman. Adam needs the other side of this equation to fulfill the glorious call of God to have dominion over the earth. 
This relationship is given significance over every other relationship on earth. It does not mean all people have to participate in marriage, but it means if you do, that relationship is separate from, united in, significant in a way that no other relationship is. In such a way that you would cut off, leave from your mother and father, and to cleave to your wife. That that man is no longer looked at as one who sits under the authority of his parents as his primary purpose and goal is to obey his parents, to honor them, to live for them. Yes, that remains, but the significance of marriage is that is secondary now to her. That's the command, pre-sin given. How should the creation of God before sin affect our lives now? Well, therefore, this is how it should affect it. A man should leave his father and mother, and he should join to his wife, and they should be united. And their relationship is also significant in verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. Their union is one of vulnerability and freedom. They are united intimately in a way that no other of creation is intended to be united. Right? Their relational intimacy, their relational unity that they are to be, and I'm not making euphemisms right now. I will, but I'm not yet. Their relational intimacy is supposed to be so significant that it is a relationship like none other close to them on earth. And how has God given a picture to define that? Well, the very command in which they are made to do to fill the earth and give dominion to it, in which they fulfill by having children, is something that only they do together. Their marital intimacy, that's my euphemism, okay? Their marital intimacy defines for them the significance of their relational intimacy. And it is binding to them. They come together, and in that, they come together in such a way that they are to be one and never attached to another and never removed from one another. That the two are to become one physically because they have been made one relationally for the glory of God. And it is why Jesus says then the condemnation of their question his condemnation of divorce. He says that a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And then as the disciples later say, hold on, explain this. What does this mean? He clarifies for them. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. Whoever leaves that union of connection and makes that union in connection with another person has committed the sin of adultery against the prior. Whoever takes what God has made to make them one and chooses to be made one with someone else commits the sin of adultery against the prior. He clarifies it's not just men, it's not just women. Anyone who divorces, who removes, who does so, is doing that. They're breaking a bond in which God made that should not be broken. He, plates it, he states it very plainly and very simply. Why? Why does God hold this so highly? Malachi tells us, uh, the prophet Malachi declares to the people of God, the seriousness in which God holds this. The ESV chooses a poor translation for this, and it gets confused about the grammar, but the NASB and every other translation that I could find states it very clearly. I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. And whoever covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. God is very clear. He hates divorce. Because divorce demands adultery. 
and adultery, perverts, maligns, decries the goodness and the glory of God in the Trinity and in the Gospel. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, says, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. What do we see here? We see that the headship of man is intended to define something, and it defines in that relationship between a man and a woman not their inequality, not that man is greater than woman. It defines their unity, and that as a man leads and a woman submits, they are perfectly unified. And you would say, no, every relationship of submission demands inequality. Why would someone who is equal submit to someone else? And it's because you worship yourself. Because your concern is not for your relationship with God. It is that, why would I ever put myself in a situation where I do what someone else wants? I only do what I want. That is the very root of sin, disunity and pride against the design of God. And marriage is created to be a picture of the perfection of God in exactly what it says in the text, that Christ submits to the Father. And He does so in perfect unity, not because He is lesser, because they have a relationship of unity and love never necessary to define for them that, oh, I have to give up what I want. Why? Because Christ always wants what the Father wants. And the Father always wants what Christ wants. There is perfect unity. We cannot picture or imagine such unity. So we need the clarity of submission and authority to declare for us how we have broken such perfect unity, how we have destroyed it, and marriage is to be an ongoing picture to us of it. Not only the Trinity, but also the very Gospel. Ephesians 5, verse 31 and 32 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Familiar, right? It's where Jesus quotes. It's Genesis chapter 2. And Paul says, This mystery is profound. And I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. Ephesians 5 declares that a woman submits to her husband as the church does to Christ. And that a husband loves his wife, leads her, sacrifices for her, cleanses her, washes her, nourishes her, cherishes her. She is a treasure to him in which he loves as the church is for Christ. That he would give himself up for her. Not just that he would die, he would suffer to ensure his death for her good. And so to take marriage and make it less, to just be for our satisfaction and our service, is to cry out against the very purpose in which God created it. I know the pain that this brings many of us. To know that the sins of our past are an abomination before God is hard to swallow. Is it not? But Christian, what do you do with the sins of your past? Do you justify them? Do you say, I, I wouldn't change anything because that was for my good. I understand you can't change anything. And we trust God in all that He's done. But to hold divorce in some place where we don't hold murder, I think is wrong. To justify divorce and say that it is good and right and it was the best thing and I wouldn't change anything is to treat divorce as though it was not an abomination before God, but just a burden of circumstance. I had no choice. There were irreconcilable differences. What did Christ do when there were irreconcilable differences? He died for his people. 
He paid for their sin. And Christian, you know that. He's paid for your sin. So what do you do? What do you do if you're divorced? Christian, welcome to the club with all of us. We have all done that which we know condemns us before God. And we do not uphold it as okay because we've done it. We hold it in shame. We lay behind what lied behind us and we move forward to the upward call of Christ. We repent and we declare, but we do not say maybe it's the best solution where God has never said it's the best solution. I included in our outline our our doctrinal statement in which we deal with this issue of divorce and remarriage. I included it for your sake. We would say that biblically, and as Jesus says in Matthew, here in Mark he says, if a man divorces his wife, he commits adultery against her. But in Matthew he makes clear what he's saying. If a man divorces his wife for any reason, like the Pharisees are saying, he should be able to. In doing so, he now commits adultery. Because what he does is, he divorces her, they're separate. Adultery has not been committed. But he marries another woman, now he committed adultery. She marries another man, now she's committed adultery. So he, divorcing his wife, forces her into a position of adultery, in a sense, if she is to remarry. He's abandoned her. And 1 Corinthians 7 would say that if your spouse abandons you, if you are left without them, you are not bound to them. And so the first we would say is abandonment. Abandonment is very difficult. Uh, People often want to make loopholes of abandonment. He's emotionally abandoned me, right? He says mean things. That's not abandonment, friend. That is sin. Abandonment. The second would be adultery. That's exactly what Jesus says in Matthew. Except on grounds of adultery. Why? Why? Because abandonment defames the vow that was made for union. When they have abandoned, they are destroying already the image which God has made, the vow that they would be one another's, that they were made for each other. They have destroyed the vow. They've committed sin in such a way that has destroyed the vow. And you are not bound to remain in their sin. You are free to remarry. Adultery destroys the very covenant, the binding of marriage. And so if a spouse is to commit adultery, they have already destroyed and marred the picture which God has created. And so that believer who has had adultery committed against them is not bound to remain in marriage. They're freed to remarried, to remarry. Where it never says, if your spouse commits adultery, you must divorce them. No. It says you are free to. You are no longer bound. If they abandon you, you must. No, you are free to, but you are no longer bound. And there are difficulties here. In the same way that God legislated in Deuteronomy 24, we must walk through and care for people who are, just because of sin, harmed and hurt because of divorce. And and we must walk through carefully, but we must not ever do so in such a way that exalts divorce as something good and right and acceptable and better for children. Because you know, friends, it is not. You know it is not. You know like all sin, you carry burdens because of it. And you trust Christ with those burdens and you run to him and you know he is faithful and you seek to be a source and a clear picture of reconciliation and redemption and what God does with sin. He died for it. But you know, you would never tell someone, that's the best choice. It's going to be best for your kids. And if you would, don't function from your feelings. Function from God's word. If there is not adultery and there is not abandonment, then divorce in mercy is not permitted because of his love, because of the picture. I had a friend recently remind me of another elder at FBC Marietta. And when his father-in-law died, after his in-laws had been married, I think over 50 years, and he died and and he went to his mother-in-law and the first thing he said to her, is you did it, Joan. You kept your vow. You did it. You made it through life. 
in the honor and the glory of God in keeping your vow. What joyful encouragement. When your heart turns to your own satisfaction, your own selfishness, remember the glory of the Trinity. Remember the grace of the gospel and live your life in such a way, married or single, that you could come to the end and the man who was merely a child when you even considered marriage could tell you, good and faithful servant, you have served Christ. Praise God. I know you might be dissatisfied with the, the, the ability of us to cover this message in this amount of time. And I realize that. And in God's grace, I have already planned to cover marriage for two Sundays in January. And that is our plan. My goal this morning was not to give a lot of practical advice of marriage. It was to clarify for us where the text clarifies the design and the purpose of marriage and the abomination of divorce. And so if, if you are wrestling and you're thinking, great, Jake, we have lots of struggle. We don't know how to live marriage out. You're telling me divorce isn't an option. Well, praise God, friend, the word of God is not silent. And we will return there in just a few weeks in January to do two weeks on God's design of marriage, not just in creation, but his commands to us for all time. But I would encourage you if this morning uh, the reality of your present state is a burden to you because of this message, hear what Christ has said. If you know you have sinned, what must you do? Run to Christ, who is righteous. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Uh, do not leave discouraged. Leave in hope that he has designed and he has purposed that you would rest your hope in him.